A content warning. This series deals with dark themes including child and domestic abuse, sexual assault, and content that is inappropriate for children. Please be advised. She was so frightened that she'd never see him again. And it was many, many, many years. She suffered from what's called adrenal exhaustion. Her adrenal gland was just drained. It's going to be your fault yeah. if you fall pregnant. You know, God's not going to be on your side. I don't know you from Adam. And if I find out that you have said anything that gets back to the tribes, I'm going to shoot you. I'm Tim Elliott. You're listening to Inside the Tribe. This is episode three, Know Your Enemy. It's hard to imagine Matt Klein ever having been in a cult. He seems too smart, too grounded, too funny. He's got a bone-dry sense of humour and is a master of the droll one-liner. A former chemical engineer, he now works as a property manager in Sydney and owns a plot of bushland in the Blue Mountains, west of the city, where he's building his dream home, an off-grid, totally sustainable house with panoramic views looking west, over dense forest and the same ridges and cliffs that he used to climb as a boy. Matt was brought up near here and raised as a Catholic, but grew disillusioned with it as a teenager. Then, when he was 30, he met a woman, fell in love and got married. Then had a child, and unknown to me, my wife was suffering postnatal depression. We then had a second child, and he was a he was a very difficult baby. Ended up with all sort of medical complications, which meant that he didn't sleep very much at night, and we ended up being very very sleep deprived. And the doctor that my wife was seeing, who was also a naturopath, um, recommended that we go out to this nice little church group for some respite care for our for ourselves because they could possibly help look after the children at night and we could actually get some sleep. That nice little church group was the 12 tribes. At the beginning I was, I was a bit skeptical uh, but they seemed nice enough and they allowed us to stay and help look after the kids at night. I wasn't that fussed either way with them, but uh, apparently my wife, after being there for three days, said she wanted to leave me and to join them full-time, not having any clue what they were even about. And uh, they said, no, 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 you got to win your husband over. And so that took probably eight months of them talking to me a lot and going through the Bible with them and trying to convince me that um, we should join. Matt had a science degree majoring in chemistry and had almost completed his master's in polymer chemistry when he dropped out to join the tribes. Uh, We sold our house, um, sold all of our possessions or just gave them away. So basically we moved in with some clothes, uh, some tools and a car that we no longer had access to. Uh, Fortunately, (laughs) there wasn't a hell of a lot left over after we paid off all of our debts and uh, probably went in with ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 we gave to them. 
there, there are other things that we gave them as well like my wife was given some pink diamonds from the argyle diamond mine that her uncle worked at and i've just looked up the price of them recently and they are worth a small fortune matt was baptized by han and given a new name lev kadash was my hebrew name which was a meant dedicated heart because the guy who gave it to me who was han zanaki he saw that i was dedicated to my family i had a dedicated heart to my family so i actually quite quite like that name and he was 100% correct. Marie, Matt's mother, became concerned. They'd been living out there at um, Peppercorn Creek for a while. Um, well, I realised that they were acting quite strangely and distantly to the family and they'd been very, you know, we'd been a close family. She and her husband would visit them at the farm. First of all, they were very friendly to the family as well. And then within eight weeks or so, I was being advised that I probably shouldn't uh, come every week or two to see them because they were very busy. And we were supposed to call them by their new names. They allowed us to call them by their old names for, I don't know, a month or two. And then we couldn't see them if we didn't call them by their cult names. And they were starting to push us out. And then Matthew started, he started writing as letters, these letters about faith and, well, their sort of faith. And, um, oh, there was an eight-page letter and it just was not Matthew, you know. It was very critical of the outside world and that sort of thing. It was sort of ravings, really. You're leading a selfish life. You're only thinking about yourself, not about others. You're spending time doing frivolous things. But what worried Marie the most was her grandchildren. The children were, they were so obedient. It was scary, you know. Um, And I arrived one day with a birthday cake because I'm not really a cook, but I used to make a cake for them with all sorts of good things in it that they'd approve of and I also had a candle that when it lit played happy birthday and it was a very hot day when I arrived in January I arrived with this this cake because I, I thought they'd let me in if I had something good for them to eat happy birthday. and the candle started to play happy birthday and that was considered deep foolishness. Tessa remembers Nan came to visit and she brought birthday candles in her handbag, the ones that like sing when you light them. So they're like heat activated and I think it was a hot day and the sun on her bag made them start singing and we all just got terrified because happy birthday was playing and we didn't know who was going to hear it and if we were going to get in trouble or yeah, I just remember them starting to sing and she was just as scared as the rest of us that you know she would also get in trouble and not be allowed to come back it was just like the reaction that you would expect for something you know you see a bomb about to explode not a birthday song playing in a bag Happy birthday. she said to me nan i hope you haven't got anything foolish for us and she was what 
just turning four. When I'd leave them out there, I would actually have to stop and write down some notes so that I could drive home without without trembling with worry about them. She and her husband started reading as much as they could about cults. And I'd started to, um, you could start looking up things on the computer and I was getting some information. And somebody said to me, maybe you should go to a, a lecture at Westmead Hospital. And it was about cults. Anyway, I went along and I think I was the only one in the audience that could relate to most of the things that the speaker talked about. I thought, oh, my God, this is some... Um, I, th- I think that we've hit the nail on the head. In 2000, Marie flew to America and met with cult experts there, including Bob and Judy Pardon. You might remember Bob and Judy from earlier episodes. They're the husband and wife team who, for 22 years, operated a care centre for cult survivors in Massachusetts. The facility, called Meadowhaven, had five bedrooms, a dining room and kitchen, and a library of 23,000 books, plus two and a half acres of peaceful woodland. It was probably 1993, I think, is when we first had contact uh, with someone who had been in the tribes. They had had difficulties with a number of parents because their children were being recruited into the group and they would cut off all contact with the group. Bob and Judy wanted to write a research paper on the tribes and asked to be granted access to the communities. The 12 tribes initially cooperated with them, but in the process of their research, the Pardons discovered the group's inner doctrine and talked with many ex-members who had been abused. The pardons included all of it in their paper, which out of courtesy they showed to the 12 tribes before publication. Yonek, who happened to be in Australia at the time, hit the roof. I got an eight-page letter from Yonek in Australia railing against oh, us. Yeah. Throwing Bible verses and it, it, eventually it was just awful. It was consigns, awful. Uh, consigns me to the lake of fire for having written this thing. This group kind of took over. They just started... Absorbed all of our attention. And and, and we were getting a lot of um, calls about them. They've been tracking the tribes ever since. Oh, they had so much information. And um, I spent a lot of time talking with them and getting information from them. But one of the good things was that they introduced me to some people who had left the 12 tribes as well. Uh, And actually, they all had run away. They all had... Sometimes they tried to run away a few times and they'd been hauled back. I wanted to meet some ex-members' parents or present members' parents. And eventually I did meet some, but most of them were so terrified that their children would never have anything to do with them again if they spoke anything negative. That was that was awful. There was one lady in New Zealand who I... We were over there on a business trip and I somehow got her number, her address. And um, she was a single mum 
and she used to save up for two years to get enough money to go and see her son in another country. And she was so frightened that she'd never see him again. And it was many, many, many years. Marie and her husband were desperate not to offend the elders, to mind their P's and Q's. Whenever she visited, she took care to wear nice long dresses and no makeup. She thought back to the birthday cake and the singing candle. I can remember walking up these wobbly steps thinking, oh, I'm going to be turfed out and I'll take them off to another country or something. Sure enough, in late 2000, Marie's worst nightmare came true when the 12 tribes sent Matt and his family to America. The first his parents knew about it was when Matt phoned them from the airport. How about that? But Matt's mission in America went off the rails almost from the start. I had complications with the US immigration because I went to America on a tourist visa and then I went to Canada and tried to get it changed into a religious workers visa. And that was denied and I was told I had to go back to Australia, wait two years and then reapply from there. But instead of going back to Australia, I went to Canada uh, to go and live at the Winnipeg community in the middle of Manitoba. Winnipeg is a mid-sized commercial city in southern Canada. It's very flat and can get very cold. Matt and his family arrived in midwinter when it was about minus 40 degrees Celsius. At first they enjoyed it. The cold was something they'd never experienced before and they were meeting new people. The community had about 100 members, mostly Canadians, living in three beautiful big timber homes right beside the Assiniboine River. The clients had a comfortable bedroom and luxury of luxuries, their own bathroom. At that time, the tribes were operating several businesses, including a shoe store in downtown Winnipeg and an engineering workshop, which made parts for buses and air conditioning units. With his background as an industrial chemist, Matt's job was to help set up a soap factory. After a time, however, Life in Winnipeg began to lose its gloss. For one thing, the diet in the community was atrocious. One chicken between 30 people and carrots that had been stored so long they were going slimy. Getting an apple was like the most amazing thing. Like, you know, I would eat them, even the whole core, just spit out the seeds and the little stem at the end because I was like, I couldn't get enough of that like flavour. <laughs> It's crazy. You go into their cafes and they have the most beautiful breads and bakeries and gorgeous salads and teas and blah, blah, blah. And when you're in there, like, you get nothing like that at all. Maybe some dried fruits if you're lucky. Like, one of my brothers had the worst teeth ever as a child because his nutrition was so, so bad in there that basically all of his baby teeth rotted before they even got the chance to fall out. Tessa was a watchful child. She was careful to keep her head down and follow the rules. But her little brother, who was four when the family went to Canada, was a boisterous boy and he paid the price for it. I remember seeing them take him for something like not dancing properly at dinner and these two men took him. He was a small child and they put him up on this counter and bent him over a bucket and took his clothes off and were just like hitting him and hitting him and hitting him. 
I remember just sitting around the corner and like just hearing him screaming and crying and then just them keep hitting him until it just went like quiet and I can only assume he I don't know passed out <laughs> like and I was just shaking like I was so scared and yeah <laughs> Um, I'd stopped spanking my children long before that, and so my wife was getting other people to spank them instead. Yeah. And no one told me about it. Uh, it was something that was kept secret from me. After about six months, the elders came to Matt with a special assignment. There was a very big event happening in in Washington that they wanted me to go down to and cook for because I'd previous experience at cooking at the Royal Easter Show in Sydney for the 12 tribes. So they wanted me to hide in the back of a van to sneak across the border. The plan seemed risky, not to mention illegal, and Matt began to question the elders' judgment. And I, I just said no. I said if God wants me there, I'll go to the visa office at, at the border and and ask if I'm eligible. And if God wants me there, he'll open the borders. And if he doesn't, I won't go. So I went to the border, asked if I was eligible, um, got interviewed, got fingerprinted, got my mug shot and got told if I was ever found in the US again, that uh, they put me in jail. Undeterred, the elders insisted he try again. The elders said, we really want you in the US for this event. And I said, well, I'm not allowed in America because they told me to go back to Australia. And they said, well, we know of a place where you can cross the river. You know, we we can drive you. You've then only got to walk a kilometre or two. Then you cross the river at night with your family and we pick you up on the other side. And I just flat out said, no, (laughs) I'm not doing that. And so Matt, his wife and the kids stayed in Winnipeg. But Matt was becoming a problem for the leadership. He was mentioning his doubts to other members, including his scepticism about the teachings. You know, I'd say I'm really struggling with believing in, in the whole 144,000 and the year of Jubilee. And they all looked at me and said, yeah, we, we struggle with that as well. And so without trying to, I was creating a whole lot of issues for the leaders there because I think a lot of the members were then going to the leaders and going, you know, we don't believe in this either. And there were certain practices that he just couldn't get with. So in the 12 tribes, they they try and control people by doing what's called cutting them off. So if you aren't obedient to what the leaders want you to do, they, they will cut you off, which means no one's allowed to talk to you, no one's to hug you, no one's to greet you. you you're basically meant to be treated as a leper. Like, particularly with um, teenage boys, they'll cut them off and they'll lose all their privileges until they get up in front of the community and apologise for what they've done and ask for forgiveness and then they're back in the fold. So it's it's a very, very powerful tool for a lot of people. For, for a lot of people there, the community was their whole life. They had no one outside to go to. They had no outside friends. They had no family, really, that could offer them anything. So 
they had to publicly humiliate themselves and apologize and ask for forgiveness so they could become part of the group again. It's 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 kind of like why solitary confinement in jail is such a such a horrible thing and uh, shouldn't be allowed is we crave human connection. Now, when I was in there and someone was cut off, I still hugged them, I still greeted them, I still talked to them because I always thought, well, Jesus didn't do that, so, so why should I? Meanwhile, Marie was doing whatever it took to maintain contact. I made sure that I wrote to them just chatting about who was doing what. Always mentioned the ocean, swimming, things that I knew that they would miss. Just raising their thoughts to the life that they'd had. Then, in September of 2001, Matt's parents came to visit. Matt got permission to leave the community, and the three of them drove around Winnipeg, taking in the sights. They even visited the zoo. It was September 11. And we were wandering around uh, Winnipeg Zoo, which was one of the most surreal experiences of my life, because we got there and there was no one else there, and we, we had the entire zoo virtually to ourselves. It was, it was completely empty. And then we walked into the gift shop sort of mid-morning and I looked up at the telly to watch one of the Twin Towers collapsing. And it was just like, what's, what, what's going on? And the people in the shop looked at me and go, don't you know there's been an attack on the World Trade Centre? Matt and his wife were at the community gathering a few nights later. One of the older people there spoke and said we had to be more like the men who flew the aeroplane into the Twin Towers. He says, not that we should go out and kill anyone, but we should be so focused on what we're doing that nothing else matters. And I just turned to my wife and looked at her and I said, we need to reevaluate our decision to be here because I didn't join to be a mindless robot. And, uh, yeah, and that, that was the beginning of the end for me. A day or two later, Matt met up with his parents again. It was a beautiful area and... We met at a table in the sunshine outside with um, geese going overhead. It was amazing, really. And then Matthew sat us down. Marie suspected, of course, that something was afoot. And he said, I want you to confess to me what you've been up to. To me, to me. And my heart just sank. And, oh, look, I was trembling. And, and I said... Matthew, I can confess that I love you. (laughs) That is my confession, my love for you and the children. And then he put me out of my agony and um, he just hugged us. and, And then we talked and he said, it's time I left. It's time I left the group. In the end, the decision was made for him. One of the church leaders there came to me and said, I need to talk to you. He took me to the side and he says, you have to leave. I said, what, all of us? And he goes, whoever is in your household has to leave. You're creating too much trouble. So I went back to the room where my wife and three kids were. And I said to my wife, we have to leave. And she says, I'm not leaving. 
I said, well, we have to. She goes, well, I'll divorce you. In the end, the kids were split up. Matt took his older son. Yeah, he just looked at me and said, I'm coming with you. Meanwhile, Tessa and her younger brother stayed with their mum. And I remember, you know, being a five-year-old girl, you obviously have like a little bit more of a connection to your mother. And I remember thinking, no, I want to stay with my mum. An elder put Matt and his son in a car that night and drove them downtown. Then we got dropped off at a hotel with a hundred bucks. The hotels rented their rooms by the hour. They had pornography on the front counter, double locks on the door and signs saying, make sure you lock your door when you're in the room. And this, you know, man of God dropped us there and drove away. And we had no ticket back to Australia. We had nothing. With the help of his family in Australia, Matt and his son made it back to Sydney eight days later. His wife and their other children returned a week after that and began living in Picton. A short time later, Matt met them at Borley Point on the south coast of New South Wales. His wife handed the other two children over to him, together with a bag of their clothes. And I remember just being quite confused as to why my mum wouldn't come with us. Obviously, we left, and then the longer we were away, that was a very large factor of, like, the rest of my life. Like, that one moment, like, why she decided to stay. And, yeah, could never quite figure out. <laughs> just, I just didn't get why. I was just, like, why? Why did you not want to be with me? Like, I think I cried myself to sleep every night for two years, and then regularly still for many, many years after that. You know, any... Mother's Day cards that we made at school would just, I could not handle it. <laughs> Anyone talking about their mums, like, I just felt very, there was definitely a big space missing there. Over the coming years, Tessa would try to make contact. I remember one time my dad gave me his old phone and he didn't, he forgot to delete the contacts out of it. And I was going through them and I saw cult <laughs> and I didn't know I didn't know if it was the 12 tribes I didn't know if it was just some person he knew through the cult or if it was the cult whose phone number it would even be but like I remember sitting up one night and being like should I message them should I message them so I just like randomly sent a text message to this number that I just didn't even know who it was gonna be hi my name's Tessa it's my mother although that's obviously not her name in the cult. You know, I would love to talk to her or see her. And I got a reply saying, yeah, we can arrange a meeting if you'd like. But that never, it never fully happened. Years later, Tessa was studying at Wollongong University when she saw that the 12 tribes had a stall at one of the on-campus events. This lady came up and ran after me and was like, Tessa, Tessa, you know, your mum, she really, she really misses you. And like, I just felt very <laughs> ambushed. And they were telling me, you know, yeah, she loves you. She loves you so much. She misses you every day. She talks about you all of the time. And I just remember thinking like, okay, so why do I never <laughs> hear this? Like, why did I've never, no one's ever told me this. She's never told me this. I've never had any 
No one's ever tried to contact me. Like, how much does she really miss me, you know? Tessa was enraged. I um, went up to their stall and they had these tea leaf boxes and they... I just started pouring them out (laughs) and the lady was like, are you all right? And I was like, are you all right? She's like, what are you doing? I was like, what are you doing here? Tessa finally met her mother two years ago. It was a full 20 years since they'd seen each other. And that was a pretty big moment. I ended up in hospital the next day with a panic attack, which I've never had before. I had no idea what was going on. For a long time after leaving the tribes, Matt was an emotional wreck, ridden with guilt, anxiety, anger and depression. He tried everything, psychologists, psychiatrists, counsellors, none of it really worked. Instead, he decided to focus on exposing the tribes. Never mind the evil one or the lake of fire. Forget about the dark angels of temptation and sin. Matthew Klein would become the 12 tribes' worst enemy. It was October 2001. Rose had just given birth to a stillborn baby boy at Picton. Still in shock, Mark had to bury the baby in the bush, in a shallow grave on the tribe's property at Bigger. The elders, meanwhile, were desperate to keep the stillbirth quiet. Those kind of events... um tended to be really, really well covered up. Um, so just the, the average disciple might not hear about it. Like a birth is celebrated. It's a huge event. But a stillbirth, you don't hear anything. Before they knew it, the family were being hustled off the farm. Out of the blue, yeah. they just say, oh, you have to go. Yeah, just get in the van and we had hardly any clothes. So then we had to to ask, uh, oh, can I please have this? Can I please have that? Like we had no... And we were supposed to um, to school our children as well, the three of them. So the, the youngest one was uh, three, the oldest one was uh, 10, 11. You don't have anything, uh, you're living from scratch. And we were told you're not allowed to work for yourself. We'll give you some money to uh, go shopping and stuff. And we didn't have a car, not allowed to have a car. Um, his brother back then used to live not far away in, in Katumba. And we were told not allowed to talk to him, avoid him. So we'll do that because they didn't want anyone to know where we were. The family was set up in a house in Lura, a small town in the Blue Mountains not far from Katoomba. The house had four bedrooms, but there was only one other family there. Occasionally other members would visit, but they were instructed to keep quiet about Rose and Mark. Meanwhile, the shepherds were keeping a close eye on them. My mum would call to say happy birthday, not allowed to talk to her. Uh, you know, they send presents, they don't, I, I wouldn't even receive them. They even told us not to have sex, my wife and I. Mm. Because, you know, hang on, she might get pregnant. You're not allowed to use condoms or contraception and all this. Yeah. You don't want her to get pregnant because it's going to have another child that's going to die. Like, it's going to be your fault yeah. if you fall pregnant, you know, like, you know, God's not going to be on your side. In July 2002, Unbeknownst to Rose or the elders, Rose's brother Henry and sister Kathy returned to Australia. By this time, they had made contact with Matt Klein, who accompanied them on a reconnaissance trip to Katoomba. It was a risky move. As an apostate, Matt was regarded by the tribes as beyond evil, a member of the walking dead, to be held in the vilest contempt. As Yonek had written, Whoever has the Holy Spirit and leaves, 
The body is turned over to death. You will not live long. As Henry, Kathy, and Matt were walking down the street in Katoomba, they ran into Mark's brother. They all went to a cafe where they discussed their concerns for Rose and Mark. But Henry sensed something strange about Mark's brother. As Henry told me in an email, We can see in his behaviour that the guy is a little disturbed. He doesn't smile, shows no empathy, it doesn't bode well. Remember that at the time Matthew had become the worst enemy of the sect. Showing up with him definitely put us on the bad side. Indeed, as it later emerged, Mark's brother was sympathetic to the tribes. After leaving the cafe, he went to the community and told them that Rose's family was in town. The elders panicked. Just leave. Get, get, get your, get your clothing. Leave, you know. And um, we didn't even know where we were going. And uh, and then they sent us away. The whole family. The elders moved Mark and Rose and the kids to bigger, where they lived alone for a month or two before returning to the farm at Picton. So began a real-life pea and thimble game in which the elders shuffled Mark, Rose and the children from one location to another. First to the sleepy little village of Austinmere, near Wollongong, then to a neighbouring suburb called Coldale. After six months there, they were sent to stay with an elder who lived with his wife and four children in Jaroa, a beachside town about two hours' drive south of Sydney. Jaroa was originally a retreat for religious orders, and the house once belonged to the Jesuits. It had lots of bedrooms and sweeping views down Seven Mile Beach. I actually really enjoyed it. Mark found an old surfboard in the rubbish and repaired it. I was teaching my son how to surf. The elder would not have approved of this. Um, He was very strict. He's pretty strict. But he was barely around. He was in the last stages of qualifying as a doctor and worked at Nowra Hospital, about a half an hour's drive away. The idea, according to Rose, was that he would eventually be able to provide medical training to other community members. One day, however, Mark and his son were in the surf when Israel and Han paid a surprise visit. They were furious. Surfing was the utmost foolishness. Han told Mark, You love the world too much, and anyone who loves the world will lose their life. It was now mid-2003, Mark and Rose would probably have stayed in Jaroa if not for an extraordinary coincidence involving Matt Klein. Matt had now been out of the tribes for two years and had completely lost contact with his wife. He'd also begun a new relationship. One weekend, Matt and his new partner went down to Jeringong, a holiday town near Jaroa. It was a Friday afternoon and they were sitting in a cafe when Matt saw Nadiv, one of the 12 tribes members from Picton walked past the window. Obviously following me. So I went out and had a look and he went into a news agency and I walked past and he's pretending to read a newspaper, which I know they're not meant to do. So he was obviously just pretending to do something rather than uh, get caught following me. So I drove off and he started following me and I, I thought, no, I'm, I'm not going to be intimidated by these people. So I turned around and started following him. We ended up in a car park where he stalled his car. So I got out and started asking him in very strong language, where's my wife? And he said to me, I, I don't know. I said, stop lying to me. And I actually grabbed his shirt, held my fist up, and I said, where is she? 
I don't know where she is. And it's like, stop lying to me. Where is my wife? I, I don't know. So I then took his car keys out and I said to him, okay, so where's my wife? I, I don't know where she is. Can I have my keys back? I said, mate, I don't know where your keys are. And I drove off and threw the keys out the window as I left. And that was on a Friday afternoon. Yeah, so probably not my finest hour, but they never followed me again after that. First thing Monday morning, Matt got a call from the police in Katoomba. He said, this is Constable so-and-so. Apparently there was an incident down at Jeringong between you and this, this person. The complaint had been made by a member of the 12 tribes who was in Picton at the time of Matt's run-in with Nadiv. Matt was not happy. Well, no, you, you're ringing up based on a complaint by somebody who wasn't there, who was 200 kilometres away. I said, no, this isn't, you know, is this an official warning or what? I'm not happy having people ring up on the 12 tribes' behalf to threaten me to leave them alone when it was he who was following me in the first place. Matt then drove to Katoomba to try and explain who the tribes were and how they operated. To the tribes, meanwhile, Matt's run-in was proof, if anyone needed, that he was the devil incarnate, and furthermore, that he knew where Mark and Rose were. Because they had this paranoia that now they're going to find us. In no time, the elders had moved Mark, Rose and the kids yet again to Bargo, a small town 15 minutes' drive from Picton. They lived there for two months, by themselves in a three-bedroom home rented for them by the elders. They weren't allowed to work and had no phone or car. The house was very isolated, too far to walk into town. They homeschooled the kids and went for bushwalks on a fire trail that led to a dam. After two months, it was deemed safe for them to return to the farm at Picton. But they were exhausted, afraid and confused. Deep down, in a way she dared not admit to herself, Rose still loved her family. She still yearned to see them, and yet at the same time they filled her with horror. There was a battle raging inside her as she attempted to reconcile these two conflicting impulses, as if feeling her way in the dark. Yeah, it's like your brain is not, not there. Like all your resources, your wisdom, your natural instincts even, you, you just suppress them because you think uh, that's, uh, that's not from God. So you suppress them and you cut them off and you, you stop thinking that way, you stop this because you want to be dedicated to God. But really what you're leaving behind is uh, your brain, your, your critical thinking, your, your natural instincts, your emotions and your, you know, your like, uh, maternal instinct. It's like uh, everything revolves around the fears and it's not logical. Then one sunny day in February 2004, Without any warning, Rose's brother Henry showed up. Well, it was a beautiful Saturday afternoon, I, I believe, and uh, and he turned up. He just walked in. So at that stage, would be like 10 years I hadn't seen him. I had a mixed feeling. I was happy, but also I, I was scared. You know, remember, I had accepted the lie, but still deep inside is my brother. But I had all these crazy ideas about him. Like, I really thought that he was going to hell and stuff. But when I saw him, I was happy to see him, but also scared, but not too scared to hug him. Some elders appeared, but they didn't seem particularly worried. They looked okay with it. They didn't say, hey, get out of the property or anything. Indeed, they even offered to look after the children. Like, they say, oh, can we have so you can spend time with your brother? 
And so that sounds very nice. But what they did is they were hiding my three children so my brother wouldn't see them. They made a meal for us and uh, we sat in the courtyard next to the creek. Bizarrely, the elders told Mark that they planned to record the conversation with Henry by placing a listening device under the table. Mark decided not to tell Rose. They were taping me because they, they micromanage everybody. They want to control everything you do and everything you say. Henry began the conversation by apologising. If he had caused any problem. And uh, both Mark and I said, oh, it's OK, uh, Henry, we forgive you. I was a little bit scared, like physically, of him. Like I said, it's that superstitious, uh, I don't know how else to call it, but that dread, you know, you feel like uh, you've got someone that's on Satan's uh, side, you know, and you're afraid that they could influence you, you know. And um, But at the same time, we had got a little bit closer by our discussion in the courtyard. Henry gave Rose some presents for the kids, and showed her a poster of the Cruzado family tree going back to the 16th century. Without pushing the point, he was trying to show Rose that she already had a family, that she didn't need the 12 tribes. After our discussion in the courtyard, um, which I felt was very intimate, and we had forgiven him, and from, from our point of view, Mark and I, I felt what Mark was feeling, that we, we wanted to be um, friends, be able to see each other, you know? We accompanied him to his car and he left. And I had said, see you later, see you tomorrow. He was going to come tomorrow and I was looking forward to spend some time with him, even though I was a bit scared of him. Then straight away, we had this meeting where there was uh, Haganai and Israel. They came to our room, they closed the door, and they just grilled us, Mark and I telling us what fools we were to believe them. And, and I was confused, like, how, how do they know what we talked about uh, in the courtyard? And I remember Huck and I really drilling into me. He was the worst. He was like, your brother's going to hell. How can you want to be around him? You know, and they want to kidnap you, kidnap the children, you know? How can you forgive him? You know, this, this guy's going to the lake of fire. He's, he's against you. He's on the evil one side. And yeah, you, you guys are gullible, you know? I burst into tears when he said that. I was devastated to hear that because it was the idea that my brother, my own brother, was too far gone uh, to be out of reach of the God's love and that they were telling me that I shouldn't be around them. So it was really going against my heart that uh, I had said I forgive you and I wanted to be to be able to see him again. Oh, and we had to throw away all the gifts, including my my poster that had all the genealogy that he had found of our families. Yeah, I, 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 I was very sad having to throw that. I, I felt really wrong, you know. The next day, Henry called to organise a picnic. I talked to him and there was someone listening on another line. Rose told Henry they couldn't meet and that the picnic was off. And he was furious. He, he, he said, well, don't be... Su-. He said something to the effect, don't be surprised if someone burns down your, your property. And then they used that to say, oh, you see, your brother's crazy. Devastated, Henry flew back to France. The Cruzados thought they might never see Rose again. Rose didn't know it yet, but they weren't the only family she would lose. Next time, we go back to the beginning and meet the man who started it all, the Anointed One, 
the apostle, Yonek. They take advantage of the system, you know? Yonek is the only person I've ever met who made sense out of that book. It's the only person. His control is the uh, one common denominator that marks every one of the communities. The dead man was a manipulator. I mean, that was the evilness of him, was that he manipulated people. He, he enjoyed the manipulation. You've been listening to Inside the Tribe, hosted by me, Tim Elliott. My co-writer and producer is Camille Bianchi. Editing by Mark Wright of Term 6. This is a DM podcast production. We've also used some third-party TV and print material through the series, with details on those in the show notes. If you or anyone you know is affected by any of the subject matter raised in this episode, you can contact Lifeline for crisis support on 131114 if you're in Australia or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline on 10273-TALK if you're in the US. Contact information for other services, including support to leave a high-control group, can be found in the show notes.